Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I've got a question I want you to think about. Hit me. Imagine somebody contracted you. I, I don't know if you've ever built anything like a shed or a house or anything like that. But imagine somebody contracted you to build something. Okay. Let's say it's a bridge. They want you to build a suspension bridge over a chasm. But there is a little qualifier on this request. Okay. You can't use any written down words. So mm-hmm. you can't read any words and you can't write any words. But I have to build a physical bridge. Yes. So mm-hmm. you need to get some workers together. Right. And you need to instruct them on how to build it. And you've got to get all your materials that you're going to need in order to build the bridge. And you've, I mean, you might have to research yourself how to build a bridge if you've never done it before. And you can't use any written down words. Huh. Yeah, that's going to be challenging. Like it, it almost makes the only alternative to be for my, for myself to build it poorly without the aid of anyone else because I'm going to have such difficulty in communicating with the workers. I'm going to have, a, but I'm going to have all this difficulty just acquiring the, uh, the plans, acquiring the materials that I need. It's going to be a huge headache. Okay. Now imagine on top of that, I also want you to organize a military campaign. Ooh. So you're going to need to get a whole bunch of people together and go raid a village on the other side of a river. Uh, you, you need to recruit your troops. You need to get provisions for all of them. You need to make sure they have food and weapons and everything. Uh, and you can't use any written down words. Hmm. I think this is really demanding a lot of me. I don't think this. Uh, I don't see see my empire growing too too much. I don't either. I and this is one of the questions that we're going to have to confront in today's episode because we're going to be talking today about the kipu, which are a fascinating record keeping and notation system from the Inca Empire. Uh, that still has many questions about it today, about uh, to what extent it represents different kinds of information and what it can tell us about things that may otherwise be lost to history. So I want to sort of draw a picture in your brain to start off with. Okay. You are holding a woven artifact between your hands, and it's made out of hundreds of strings or cords. Uh, and it's very old and it looks like it may have sort of succumbed to some, I don't know, what you might call uh, parasitism or predation on cloth over time. It might have some fungus or some insect larva in it or something like that. But it's made out of these, these very old strings or cords. Uh, it might be woven out of cotton or it might be woven out of wool from a South American camelid like a llama or an alpaca. And it has one thick backbone cord stretching horizontally at the top, sort of like a clothesline. Uh, it might be about a quarter inch thick, so sort of like the cords that you would have in your electronics. And then down from that backbone cord hang lots of other cords with different characteristics. Some have n- different colors. They have knots tied all over them. They might have subsidiary strings hanging off of the cords. This is a kipu. And if anyone out there has ever gone to an art museum and seen some examples of, of fiber art, particularly modern fiber art, yeah. uh, with kind of an archaic look to them, uh, that's the kind of sense you get uh, looking uh, at the kipu. Because it, it it's, it's, it's intricate looking, it's old looking, but you also, without coming in with some prior knowledge, it's very difficult to understand what it's for. Yeah, so the, these kipu are so fascinating and enigmatic that I think they have inspired a lot of other designs and artists throughout the ages. Mm-hmm. And so the word kipu comes from, there, there are a lot of spellings of it, we should note. So if you're looking for it on the Internet, you might have to try different spellings. It's K-H-I-P-U or Q-U-P-U, uh, some other variations. But basically it comes from a Quechua word, and Quechua is an Andean language in South America, and the word means not. And this makes sense because, as I've said, in the strings, you'll see lots of knots tied up and down the length of the strings hanging off the top. So this is a very rare artifact in the modern day. Only some hundred, some few hundred of them exist. We can talk about the numbers in a bit. 
And the basic terminology that we're going to use in the episode today for your reference is that this this backbone cord at the top, sort of the, the main cord, is the primary cord. The ones that hang down from it with knots on them are called the pendant cords. And then some of the pendant cords are going to have subsidiary cords hanging off of them. And then there can be subsidiaries of subsidiaries of subsidiaries. And the, these things can get very complicated and huge over time. But the question, of course, is what does it do? Yeah, because looking looking at one, you might think, well, this is some sort of an art mop or something, right? Yeah. Well, what are all the knots for? Why so many cords? Yeah, it looks like it could be a garment. Like, yeah. you know, it could be like a skirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might have a, you know, grass skirt or something like that. Or it could be, yes, like you say, a mop, a cleaning instrument of some kind, some kind of tool. But what everyone now agrees is that it was not these things. It might be a tool in one sense, but it's an intellectual tool. This collection of strings and cords with knots tied in them is a system of storing information just like the hard disk on your computer or like a uh, or like a clay tablet or a paper document it's for storing information that was useful to the andean peoples who used it so it stores information but what kind of information what does it say yeah we're getting into the into this area of pre-written language uh, recording of information, yeah, uh, which is such a fascinating area because uh, you you're seeing the emergence of of, of written language. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about notation, physical notation of information here. Yeah, we're so used to the way our graphical languages work. I mean, I think that's the term we should use: graphical mm-hmm. languages, right? Because we represent them by making essentially drawings on paper right. or on another surface. You 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 leave markings on a flat surface to indicate letters that we use as as a phonetic system of communicating language. We operate by pictures correspond to sounds of words, and those sounds of words correspond to ideas. And we're so immersed in this uh, in this system. I mean, it, it informs the way we think about the world exactly. as well as interact with it. So it's it, it is kind of difficult for a modern uh, uh, viewer, a modern language user to sort of strip some of that away, uh, to strip our written system away and try to imagine a world without it. Yeah. And I want to get to the impact of physical writing systems on the mind toward the end of this episode. But for now, I think we should focus on the kipu itself and look at what this artifact is, what we can learn about it, and what the mysteries about it that remain are. Yeah, and indeed where it comes from, because understanding the the Incan civilization is also vital to, to seeing like how did this how did this come to take place. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that's a great place to start. We should give a very brief, very cursory overview of the Inca Empire. Obviously we can't get into all the fascinating details about this empire or it would take over the podcast and become the whole thing. But uh, but to start off with, the Inca Empire was a civilization that occupied the Andes, the Andean region and the mountains in the west of South America in what is today Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador, Chile, Argentina. And in terms of sheer size, it was the single greatest empire in all of the Americas before the European invasion. So the Incas had this vast, powerful, impressive empire stretching all and down the west side of South America when the Europeans arrived in the late 1400s, early 1500s. But according to the traditional understanding of, of the history of this pre-Columbian civilization, the Inca did not have traditional written records. They didn't have a writing system, or they certainly didn't have one of the kind that we can understand as graphical writing system, right. like markings on a page. And for a long time, it was thought that they didn't have any sort of writing system at all. And because of the lack of known historical uh, or written records by the Incas themselves, a lot of the information that we have about Inca culture comes directly from the Spanish conquerors and colonists who came beginning with uh, Francisco Pizarro, who colonized South America in the 1500s and eventually brought the Inca Empire to an end. Uh, but we should we should talk about a few cultural facts about the Incas. Like one of the things to look at is what their religion and mythology looked like. Yes, indeed. Uh, and they had a had a really you know fairly complex uh, religious system it was uh, centered on the worship of the sun in the guise of the ancestor god inti but it also entailed a host of other pre uh, inca belief systems as well as a rich tradition of ceremonial magic uh, animism dualism 
cults of the mummified dead. Oh, yeah. Uh, and hopefully that is something that a uh, future episode of, of uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind will get to uh, oh, yeah. as we've had some mummy episodes. Uh, the mummies of the Andean civilizations? Yeah. This is fascinating. We should definitely come back to that. Indeed. Uh, magical items, divination, as well as animal and human sacrifice. Now, that uh, that god Inti, the ancestor god, uh, is depicted as a human face on a ray-splayed disc. It's an important god of crops and life, and most of their major uh, deities line up with what you would expect from uh, an agrarian society. You know, the gods of rain, the gods of sun, etc. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Inti, the face on the disc, that's sort of like a face in the sun, you're saying. Right, yeah, the sun god, essential to everything. Gotta have one. Right. But then there's also a god by the name of Viracocha. Uh, which is the creator god of the Inca, or at least the, the late Inca. And so the idea here is that he created the sun and the moon on Lake Titicaca. Uh, after his creation, he wanders the world as a bearded, robed man with a staff, oh, teaching the great. ways of, yeah, of civilization to the people. So imagine sort of a, uh, you know, a South American Gandalf, I'm thinking. That's amazing. So the creator god comes to earth and wanders his own creation. Yeah. As, as a sort of itinerant. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like uh it reminds me a little bit of uh, of of some of the later uh, Dune uh novels, right? Oh, yeah, there yeah. you go. But um but he but he, the other thing is this is a very ancient god and he actually predated the Inca Empire. They didn't actually uh, add him to the pantheon until much later, uh, possibly under uh, the rule of an emperor who took the name of the god Viracocha and died in 1438. So it, it's kind of this interesting scenario yeah, where it's a pre-existing god it doesn't factor into the early uh, Inca system, but then ends up becoming a dominant one later on. Yeah. But, of course, when we talk about the Inca Empire there, we're not just talking about the, the ethnic group of the Incas themselves, because the, they went on to create this vast empire right. that included many different regions of the, the continent and many different peoples. So so they had a vast system of social and political organization. Exactly. So, yeah, it's like any really uh, any kind of imperial religious uh, system. There are going to be these other older religions that are playing into the popular belief system. Uh, there are going to be regional beliefs. There are going to be new beliefs. Uh, suddenly gods, gods that suddenly find uh, a following with very important people. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's, it's a rich tapestry. Uh, now as for their overall political organization, they established their capital in uh, Cusco, uh, in Peru, in the, what is now Peru in 12th century. Uh-huh. Uh, and they expanded via military conquest in the early 15th century and within a hundred years they gained control of the Andean population of about, uh, 12 million people. Total. Yeah, and I've read many sources talking about the the very uh, hierarchical nature of the of the Incan Empire. Yeah, like the, there were very clearly defined systems of who answered to who. Yeah, it's it's easy to to take sort of a Western uh, uh, approach to all this and, and and view other civilizations and kind of imagine something kind of simple and primitive. Right. They, they've got a pope and a king and a, all that. Yeah. But, but, but this is really, yeah, it was a really rich system. Uh, and certainly at the top, it's, uh, it's headed by, by the emperor. And, but underneath the emperor, there's just a complete, uh, aristocratic bureaucracy and there's, and, and the military system that keeps a firm commanding hand on everything. And the divisions here involve, uh, the central government, quarterly governments, uh, provincial governments, and uh, what they call decimal administrations. And so, and the priesthood plays an important role in the structure as well, as does the military, and it all kind of just tightens the grip on uh, on most of the uh, the people in the empire who are just farmers. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned earlier, there there were hundreds of years of the Incas sort of expanding their their power and capabilities. But mm-hmm. as the actual official empire goes, it was fairly short lived. Officially lasting only from the early 1400s, I think the 1430s or so. Yeah. Until the Spanish conquest, beginning in the 1530s, with the last. Inca resistance being destroyed by the Spanish in the 1570s. Uh, however, despite that short period, the Incas were incredibly productive in building this powerful technological civilization. Yeah, in the same way that their religion was sort of pieces of things that already worked, mm-hmm. uh, so too their uh, their empire seems to be built of technologies that were already more or less in place, but then what they did with them uh, in, in creating this unified structure is pretty amazing. Yeah, I read definitely one scholar talking about how the, the, the amazing technology of the Inca was primarily an organizational or management-based technology. Yeah. What was amazing about what they did was their ability to 
to organize groups of people to achieve ends, whether those ends are engineering or, or architectural or strategic uh, social organizations or civic organizations, that they were able to mobilize people toward goals and get things done. Yeah, because they already had you already had the skills out there. You already had plenty of of uh, successful farmers mm-hmm. who had successful craftsmen, uh, and then they were able to utilize these. Uh, to create the infrastructure of empire. Uh, yeah, but just a few quick things to name about the Incan technological achievements. One, of course, would be their, their civic infrastructure. So the cities mm-hmm. and the roads they have that span diverse climates and ecoregions and dealt with very difficult terrain throughout the Andes. I mean, they're building a civilization up and down the sides of unwelcoming mountains, yes. you might say. Uh, but there is also the Incan road system, and this passes through the high Andes coastal desert, the lowland forests. It, it was complex and used traffic management. And then there's this one fact that often gets referenced because it's so interesting. They had a they had a messenger system made of these messengers known as Chaskis. Have you read about these guys? Yes, because they do tie in with uh, our, our core uh, subject here today. Yeah, yeah. So these are lightning fast running messengers, and they carried information across these empire spanning road systems. And they would carry with them the subject of what we're talking about today. Like you said, the quipus, these these strings and cords that had knots on them to carry information. And they would carry the quipus with them and they'd trade out with rested runners at waypoints. And they would bring information about state projects back to central administrative nodes like Cusco. And they could cover huge distances very quickly. An often cited number is that they could cover 240 kilometers a day on foot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and another thing I've read is that they, they boosted their high altitude sprinting power by chewing coca leaves to increase endurance and dull pains and hunger and thirst and huh. sort of focus. Of course, the, the coca leaves being the precursor to cocaine. Uh, and even here, you might say that this is a technological innovation in the use of nootropics or per- performance enhancing drugs. Oh, yeah. And of course, even to this day, you can, um, it, it's sometimes recommended to have the coca tea if you're trying to adapt to high altitude uh, uh, situations in South America. Yeah, but uh, of course, on top of all that, they had I- irrigation mm-hmm. systems, uh, calculations used for engineering. The, the Incans had this interesting stone device called a upana, which is, from what I've read, it's similar to an abacus. It was like a stone device they used for doing calculations. Also, one of the most impressive and interesting things to me is their bridges. They're just amazing. Yeah, their their bridges are... Uh, Really fascinating, and this this is something I think I covered for the first time when I was working on how bridges work for HowStuffWorks.com. Um, the Incans built the earliest known suspension build uh, bridges in the world uh, out of twisted grass. Essentially, uh, we're talking about fiber arts here, and this is where yeah. I, I get kind of excited thinking about them because you you think of uh, this this culture where again they're building the empire out of the existing tools what are we good at what can what are what are we great at yeah and one of the things they're great at is crafting things out of fiber uh, out of string out of rope and twine yeah I didn't even think about this connection until now but we're seeing this notation system that we're mm-hmm. focusing on today made out of textiles we're seeing major infrastructure like bridges made out of weaving uh, it's it's a, a sort of weaving-based technoculture. Yeah, it's kind of like, to come back to that question you asked me at the beginning of the episode, you know, how would I do all these things? How would I build my empire if I couldn't use written language? Like the follow-up question would might have to be, well, what, what are you good at? What is the, the th- what what is your what is your your primary yeah. skill that we could build all of this on? Or more than that, what is what are lots of people good at? Yes, you know yeah. what are, what are the skills that we can get lots of people doing for the empire without having to teach them how to do it? Yeah. So these bridges uh, in question here, uh, they were first discovered when Spanish conquistadors made their way into Peru uh, in uh, the year fifteen thirty two, and. They discovered this this wonderful highway system that we've already mentioned. But as you mentioned, that highway system has to span some pretty treacherous areas, including some some uh, some deep mountain gorges. Uh, and uh, that's where they discovered these um, these suspension uh, bridges, uh, achieving spans in some places of more than 150 feet or or 46 meters. Uh, in Europe, on the other hand, they wouldn't see it. Europe wouldn't see its first suspension bridge until nearly 300 years later. So wow. they were they were building these these grass, these fiber bridges yeah. to connect their highway system. And if you're having trouble picturing this, I would recommend looking it up to see what they look like because you can see pictures of them today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, 
essentially it's a bridge hanging from ropes. Yes. That's what it is. Yeah. And there is one left in the world. Um, there is, uh, I mean, one, uh, ink and grass bridge. Yes. One, one remaining ink and grass uh, bridge. And it is the, uh, Keshwa Chaka. Uh, and, uh, it's, there's like a single, uh, Inca bridge keeper named, uh, uh, Victoriano, uh, Araspana who uh, I believe is still alive, still caring for the bridge. Because that's the other thing. If you're building your bridge, your bridge system, uh, if you're connecting your highways with rope bridges mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a climate uh, like this, you have to continually care for them uh, with a with a frequency that uh, you, you maybe uh, don't have to, dep- to, to turn to as much with stone bridges. Yeah, I was uh, watching a video actually about modern upkeep of these bridges, and they, they don't just have to maintain them, they have to replace them yeah. frequently. So they'll... At a, at a certain period, every number of years or something, I think maybe depending on the condition of the bridge, they'll cut it down and put up a new one. Indeed, and uh, in, in the, of course, there are other areas where uh, they're really using these these fiber arts uh, as well. Uh, so they're they're create, creating fiber boats out of uh, reeds, fiber armor that's uh, stronger pound for pound than the steel worn by con- conquistadors, uh, woven slings that could uh, supposedly split a Spanish sword cool. uh, with the stone uh, that it fired. Uh, they also had burial and sacrificial textiles that were also quite important, which in a way they that gets into our techno religion uh, episode of of, uh, of your right, yes. Because anytime you have a, cu- a culture that has some sort of technology, that technology is of course going to be used for religious purposes. Oh, I'm gonna get into that later. And uh, you know, textiles are so important. Textiles, along with corn, served as a kind of currency for paying the soldiers of the empire. So you're really to the point where you almost cannot overstate the importance of textiles and fiber uh, arts and, and crafts within the Inca Empire. Yes. Uh, but so reviewing all of these massive projects and achievements of this empire, I want to come back to that question I started with at the beginning. Because the traditional understanding is that the the Incas did not have a writing system, Mm -hmm. and they certainly didn't have a graphical writing system. And so if you assume that they didn't have a system for notation of words in in any way, these achievements, they seem almost impossible to me. Like, how could it be done yeah. without being able to write down notes about how things should be carried out? Well, it makes you think you, you're sending that runner off, right? Yeah. And you, you tell him, hey, I need you to tell uh, such and such to the next village over. Make sure you remember it. Hey, we have all this string around here. Tie a piece of string around your pinky finger, and that'll remind you. <laughs> so, if you, like, how far could you extrapolate that system? You'd run out of fingers, but you still have all this string, yeah. right? Yes, and that brings us back to to the quipus that we're talking about today. Now, one of the central themes of this episode is going to be talking about the disputes about what is encoded in the quipus, what kind of information is in there. I think what's undisputed is that there is numerical information in there mm-hmm. and that the quipus were used to keep track of goods and labor in society. So people living under the Inca Empire might have owed the state X number of days of work every month or something like that how to keep track of the number of days you've worked and how many you owe. And then also people are organized into labor groups. You need census data to make organizational decisions about how many people you're going to have doing a certain project or available if you need them to fight in your army. And then, of course, the Incan engineers and architects need to be able to make notes about the products of calculations used in engineering and architecture. And all th- all these numbers we now know were encoded in the Kipu, but is there other stuff in them as well? Uh, so here, here we should get into what the Spanish colonial authorities had to say about that. As we said earlier, for a long time, pretty much everything we knew about the Incas came from written records of the Spanish. And that's not a great situation to be in. Right. <laughs> depending upon the, the conquerors, the alien conquerors to yeah. tell you how these people lived and, and, and what their, their, their not system represented. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are just different concerns. The Spanish yeah. colonists were very concerned about the glory of the Spanish crown with domination, exploitation of resources, spreading their version of Christianity. Uh, so gaining a deep understanding of the existing cultures and their technology might not have always been at the forefront of of their list of priorities. Right. Yeah, I mean the 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 system itself does not prize 
that so much. Yeah, uh, but more recently, physical clues from archaeology have started to round out our modern understanding of the Incas. Uh, I think we're getting a better and, and more unbiased idea of what the empire looked like, but there's still so much we don't know. Uh, but so what, what did the Spanish chroniclers make of these quipus? Well, one of the things that I found is a collection of awesome illustrations <laughs> that the Spanish colonists made of the quipus explaining them. Uh, just a few here from the 17th century, one group by uh, Guaman Poma de Ayala and another group by Martin de Marua. Well, what are we seeing here, Robert? Well, we are seeing drawings of uh, individuals holding these quipus, which look, uh, again, at times just kind of like mops. Like they're, yeah. they're not the most detailed representations of what's going on. I mean, more so in the Marua uh, illustrations uh, than in the earlier ones. But but then on the other hand, you do see an attempt to document and understand what's going on with this with this system. Yeah. One example is there's it almost looks like a political cartoon. It's just yeah. sort of a black and white drawing of someone in uh, with a with a ponytail and uh, and a tunic of some kind holding one of these quipus. And then there's a little sign extending off of it that has the word for letter mm-hmm. in Spanish, indicating that this this collection of strings is a message that's being carried. So I think this is supposed to be an illustration of the, the Chaskis. Right. But of course, there are written accounts also. Uh, I want to read one quote from the Jesuit missionary Jose de Acosta. And this is cited in translation in the Encyclopedia of the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine in Non-Western Cultures, edited by Elaine Celine, and translated by the entry author Molly Toon. So here's this selection. They are quipus, memorials or events registered in strings on which diverse knots in diverse colors meant different things. It's incredible what they achieved this way, how much books can say about history and laws and ceremonies and business accounts. The quipus supply all this so promptly that it's admirable. In order to have these quipus or memorials, there were official representatives that today are called quipu camayo who were obligated to give accounts of everything, like the public scribes here, and as such they have to be given full credit. For diverse genres like war, government, tribute, ceremony, land, there were diverse quipus or strings, and in each handling of these, so many knots and intricacies and strings were attached. Some were colored, some green, some blue, others white, and so many differences that just as we form 24 letters in different ways to make such an infinity of words, these Knots and colors make innumerable meanings of things. And there, there are also stories of quipus being used for narrative purposes in other contexts. For example, somebody might be in the middle of a court case before, mm-hmm. before a governor, and they have to bring a quipu out to give testimony in the court. So, oh, wow. they, so, it's, so it's serving as an official record of, yeah. uh, of transactions or some sort of uh, business history. The, the quipu is... Is, is the recorded document. So we're seeing the, not only the externalization of, of human thought, uh, no, but, and not only the use of uh, the kipu as a, as a way to remember something and convey information, but just to store it and immortalize it. Yeah. And so, uh, the question here is, can we trust the Spanish understanding of what they claim to see? I mean, are these accounts accurate? Are, are the, is it really true that you could take a kipu and read testimony from it? You mm-hmm. could take a kipu and read histories of governments and, uh, and even read, uh, religious things, uh, ceremonial incantations, uh, read all of these sort of literary formats from it. Can you fit a history into knots? And that's still the question for researchers in this area. So we'll, we'll get into the modern quest to solve the mystery of the knots in a moment, but first we should take a quick break. All right, we're back. So we're, we're trying to unlock the, the mysteries of the, the quipus. But one of the problems here, of course, is that the Inca Empire is long gone. Most of the quipus are long gone as well. Yeah, so after the Spanish conquest of the region, the quipus were just used less and less frequently. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. There's probably some stigma against it because of the cultural power of the Spanish mm-hmm. as the colonists. They they didn't like these things. They thought of them, them as idolatrous. Uh, and so the, the Spanish, it is said, destroyed a lot of the quipus intentionally because, you know, they're blasphemy. Uh, 
or some were also probably destroyed by the Incas themselves during their own civil war. Many others were simply lost to time. Like these are not stone carvings. Right. These are textiles and they're, you know, they, they can be subject to the elements. And so almost all of the quipus we have available to archaeology today come from graves that we've opened up or come from private collections that are, or museums and they're originally of unknown origin. We don't know where they come from. So it can be difficult to figure out what the quipu was supposed to mean in its original context. Yeah, we don't have the context. We don't have the, uh, we don't have the record keeper to, to, to tell us what the notations are referring to. Yeah. And so we're back to that big question. Are these only numbers? Are they only the raw data sheets for imperial accounting? Or do they contain words and calendars and genealogies and astronomy and royal history and literature and even poems and songs? Uh, and so many for many years, scholars all knew that these systems of chords and knots were used for some kind of notation, but they were not able to translate or decode them. And eventually in the first half of the 20th century, that changed because a scholar named Leland Locke demonstrated conclusively to the academic community that the chords carried numerical messages in decimal form. Uh, however, Locke argued that these knots were used for purely numerical purposes. And so he, he was saying that, look, we can show how these things work to calculate numbers and to transmit numbers, and that's all they do. Uh, and this remained the dominant thinking for a long time. Mo- most scholars were convinced by Locke's point of view that these didn't have other, they didn't have stories in them. They didn't have words in literature. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, in this, we get into the bias of just approaching this uh, with with our own written language so firmly ingrained in our minds. Exactly. So to answer this question, I think we should start by looking at how you read a kipu. Uh, and we should just start with the numbers, because that's what everybody agrees is there. H- how do you read the numbers on a kipu? Well, we have, we have a pretty good understanding of the numerical notation system. And uh, I want to give a brief explanation that I got from a, a presentation given by a researcher named Gary Erton. And uh, Erton is a, one of the foremost kipu researchers in the world. His name comes Comes up a lot if you're reading about this subject. And uh, Erton says that the, the kipu was probably the principal instrument of management of the Inca Empire. And it was used to manage numbers in the following way. So picture your kipu again. Put it up in your mind. You've got the big primary string hanging horizontally. Mm-hmm. And then down from that are your pendant strings with knots on them in different places. So the Incas, as we've said, they had a decimal number system. That's a base 10 counting system. It's just like ours. And the way the strings work is the placement of the knot on the string represents number places in the same way we represent them by the order of writing. So think of the number 537. You see that number written down and you instantly know what it means because the number, the farthest to the right is the ones place. There are seven ones. And then the second most to the right is the tens place. There are three tens. Mm-hmm. And then the number uh, f- farthest from the right is the hundreds place. And there are 500. So it's 537. And there's a very similar placement system with the kipus, except it goes from the bottom of the string to the top. So a knot at the bottom of the string represents a value of one, the ones place. The next Space up the string represents a value of the tens place and so on like that. And then uh, different types of knots represented different values in those numeral places. So, yeah, we can all uh, easily imagine that, I think. And certainly you yeah. can look at some of the visual aids as well. Um, knots in the string representing numbers coming together to represent larger numbers. Yeah, and there's some variations, but that's the gist of it. And we can be confident that we're reading the strings correctly because sometimes the strings are summed by other strings. This is one of the things Leland Locke showed. Uh, so that there might be, for example, four pendant strings, and then the primary string shows a number that happens to be the sum of all of the pendant strings put together. Mm-hmm. So that would be very, very unlikely to happen if... That we're not if we were not reading the numbers correctly, but even with the numerical notation, there's a question. Let's say you're looking at a kipu. You got a kipu in your hands, and it, it might smell kind of moldy, and right. uh, and it's this ancient thing. And you figure out by adding up the knots on it, you you figure out how to read the knot placement. And there's 667 of something. Okay, what is the something? Ah, 
Is there more information to get out of a kipu, even if it's just meant for numerical notation, as the traditional hypothesis holds? And so one hypothesis is that the colors of the chords mean something. So maybe a, a, a chord that's red colored means uh, some number of corn, ears of corn. And then a chord that's a different color means some number of peanuts or something. Right. Because, or, I mean, the other idea would be that. It would depend entirely upon the context that was known by the holder of the kipu. And that is something that has been hypothesized as well. For example, some people might say that the kipu would require specially trained people to keep track of and orally transmit contextual information about the mm. kipu. So, for example, the, these chaskis, the runners, uh, the idea was that the runners would deliver the kipus uh, for numerical data, but they would also orally relay messages contextualizing the numbers. So they'd hand off to a kipu to you, it's 667, and they say, this is the number of times the emperor is going to kick you in the face if you don't do what he says <laughs> or or this is the number of ears of corn he'll give you if something if you do what he wants so in this model the kipu would not be say a a a, a more primitive substitute for written language it would be a not- notation system that does not in and of itself tell the story or tell the complete data it relies too upon the narration and or interpretation of of another human yes exactly and this is something that also might have been done by these people called the the kipu kamayuk the knot keepers who were uh, talked about by the spanish who specialized in creating and reading the kipu so these were like the scribes who would be called out if you needed a kipu read in court to give testimony mm-hmm. the scribe would come out and explain what the kipu said so the idea here could be that, well, maybe some of the information isn't in the kipu, it's in the scribe. Right. And the scribe knows, okay, this kipu means X, Y, and Z. So there's the possibility that the idea is just sort of hard-coded numerical data with oral metadata. Okay. But then, to back to your point, though, that we do see colors. We do see other uh, differences that go beyond uh, the, the mere knots, right? Yes, exactly. And one other very interesting fact, speaking to the BBC in 2003, that scholar I mentioned earlier, Gary Erton, gave this figure that's kind of interesting. About two-thirds of the known kipu at that time, that number might have changed somewhat since then, but about two-thirds of them back then obviously consisted of numerical figures. They fit the standard scholarly model. You can look at the numbers and just count up numbers. Mm -hmm. But what about the other one-third? There's this other group of kipus that we have available to archaeologists that don't obviously just transmit numerical information. So what's going on with them? Are they saying something? And that's the big question that scholars are still trying to answer today. So one of the biggest steps towards uh, discovering the other information contained in the kipu, if there is such information, is the creation of a standardized computer database of kipu descriptions. Because it's very hard, Mm -hmm. you know, like you don't know what information is relevant. So you're looking at a bunch of textile woven stuff. You're like, well, this one has kind of a frayed end. Is that something? Could that mean something or is that just how it is? Yeah. And this one has an overhand knot. This one has an underhand knot in the same place does is is that meaningful is that coding some kind of something that would mean mean something make sense or is it just an accident so having a standardized database of descriptions including basically all of the relevant information that you can state about these strings uh, allows people to cross-reference them and look for patterns, and especially re- allows computer programs to look for patterns in the strings and knots, because patterns are often the key to translation. Uh, for example, if you see a very commonly repeated pattern in something, even if you have no idea what the pattern means, you might start by assuming it represents a common word, like the name of an emperor or the name of a capital city or something like that. And so researchers have been doing this, actually. More than a decade ago, Harvard University researchers Gary Erton and Carrie Brazine started doing computer analysis of Kipu. And in 2005, they published research suggesting uh, that introductory chords on some of these Kipu might serve as toponyms, which would be like location tags. Okay. That would be the name of a place to show where Kipu came from or uh, what community it concerned. And if this is correct, this means that, okay, we definitely know there's some kind of notation in these strings other than mere numbers, the name of a place. And if there's a name of a place, there could be other words, right? Hmm. That's interesting. Um, 
Yeah, and especially again, if you think back to the Inca as just as, as having such a, an expertise in textiles, yeah. like is textiles are going to speak to their their masters perhaps in a way that that they're just not going to speak to a, a modern observer, even a modern observer who has immersed themselves uh, in the topic. Uh, and I also have to say that the idea of a modern computer essentially speaking or attempting to speak and communicate right. with this older uh, form of notation, this older informational system is just really mind-boggling. I, I love, I, I just love to, to envision it. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And there's another really interesting development. This is actually, reading this story is what made me want to do this episode, that there's a very recent discovery that might help us crack the code. It might give us a foothold into looking for the Rosetta Stone of the Kipu. So the discovery was that there's an archaeological site about a hundred miles south of Lima, Peru, and it's called Inca Huasi. And at this site, excavators found a collection of Kipus in their original place of use. If you want to look this up, there's a great New York Times article on it called Untangling an Accounting Tool and an Ancient Incan Mystery from January of 2016. Uh, so the Kipus in their original place of use. It was a storage facility for food crops. So they've got foods there like peppers, corn, beans, peanuts, and remnants of many of these foods have been preserved by the arid climate of the site. So we can still tell what crops were where in this storehouse. And this is significant because, as we said before, most kipus today, they don't come from their original context. They were buried in a grave with somebody or they came from somebody's private collection and we don't know where they originally came from or what they might have meant. So here we can see kipus along with the quantities they're supposed to be counting, 667 somethings become 667 baskets of peanuts. And using this contextual information, archaeologists can look for physical signifiers in the kipus, like uh, extra knots or knot orientation or string color that might correlate with what's being counted. Yeah, something to say that this was not 667 peanuts, but 667, uh, um, you know, uh, bundles of peanuts or something. Yeah, you know, there was there was some other uh, detail that defines exactly what it's saying. And so if they can find such details, that might correlate with what's being counted. And like I say, give us a foot in the door to start understanding non-numerical information hidden in the strings that we couldn't understand before. Uh, but I do want to also qualify it. Uh, Gary Erton, that same scholar, he's quoted in the article and he, he, he says it's not quite the perfect Rosetta Stone yet. Uh, so if there are any linguistic narratives waiting in the undeciphered undeci- kipus, we haven't found the perfect key to decoding them yet. Hmm. But that made me wonder, what would be the jackpot find? What, yeah. what is exactly what we'd like to find to s- figure out if there are literary histories and poems and stuff like that in the kipus? And I found a pretty good answer to this. In a 2003 news piece for the journal Science, Charles C. Mann uh, offered that the best case scenario would be to discover a Spanish colonial translation of a known quipu. And then we really would have something like the Rosetta Stone. So the Rosetta Stone helped us discover how to translate hieroglyphics mm-hmm. by having the same document in hieroglyphics and then in Greek right next to it. So what we need is a contemporary translation where um, where a, a Spaniard essentially sat down and said, hey, explain to me what this kipu is saying. Show me what this kipu is right. saying. And then him recording. Yeah. And so and we would also have to have access to what the kipu was either yeah. to actually have the kipu still or to have a complex description of what was on it. OK, so both of these things have to survive, have to have existed and to have survived. Yeah. Okay. But if we had such a thing, we could form the basis of a lexicon. Unfortunately, we don't think there's anything like that. Mm. Unless I should mention that th- I should mention this, though, it's a kind of iffy road to go down. So there is one set of colonial documents out there or claimed colonial documents uh, produced by the Neapolitan amateur historian Clara Michinelli in the 1990s, which claims to include an original historical account of the literary contents of Kipu. And so it explains that some Kipus contain a secret phonetic rendering of the Andean language Quechua, which we mentioned earlier. 
and they say that certain physical markers on the strings represent syllables of the language. So that would be actual hmm. phonetic language, not just uh, not like a symbol, not like a knot means a word, but like a certain symbol on the rope means a sound that you make with your mouth. So what's the problem with this document? Well, well, if it were true, it would be a huge discovery. <laughs> but um, but this collection of documents has been regarded with what I would describe as serious skepticism by the mm-hmm. scholars I was reading. Uh, I, I haven't seen any Andean scholars talking about it in recent publications. M- almost everything that mentions it says, I don't know, this looks kind of iffy. Um, so it, it doesn't seem to me like the academic community is persuaded that these documents hold any value. They might be forgeries or they might uh, the documents might be really historical, but the, they might have been forged at the time they were created. But if you want to learn more about that, you can Google the Michinelli documents or the Naples documents and that'll turn up some leads for you. So the mystery of whatever literary content the quipus contain is still a mystery. We, we don't have the answer yet. Who know? We may never have the answer or we may find out that, you know what? It, it's all, it's all just numerical notation. In fact, there is no literary content there, but I hope that's not the case because it really would be amazing to suddenly uncover the meaning of, of all these documents that contain the history we never got from the Spanish. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you you want that culture to still have a voice in our world, despite um, what was done to eradicate it. And that that also gets to another um, area here is that, and, and one of the other just huge tragedies of uh, of any of the uh, American uh, cultures um, is that we, we'll never know where they would have gone, what would it, would they would have developed into. Right. Without this, uh, outside context event of the, uh, of the, of the colonial invasion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what would the Incan culture have looked like a few hundred years down the road if not for the introduction of, of smallpox and the Christian mission and, and the, uh, and the military conquest of the Spanish? It, it's hard to say, but I, it would have been fascinating to learn that. Yeah, because fortunately we can look back to other physical notation systems in history and we can actually see how they developed and look at how they uh, seem to have played into the development of written language and uh, and and, uh, and 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 numbers as well. Y- yes, exactly. So if you do think of uh, of one possibility about the quipus being a sort of proto writing system, mm-hmm. like maybe it wasn't fully able to communicate literary content yet. But it had some literary content, like it had some words, but not the whole language right. represented. Uh, that has some parallels that we know about from other times and places in history. Yeah, particularly if we go back to uh, Neolithic uh, Mesopotamia. Uh, particularly, we're going back to around uh, uh, 7,500 BCE. And this is where we saw the use of clay tokens in accounting. So... These were clay tokens, and they were inscribed with recorded information about traded agricultural goods. Uh, we see the use of small geometric clay objects throughout the Near East in this period, and it's all serving as, as ultimately as a precursor to writing and mathematics. So this is try, sort of like the traditional understanding of the numerical kipu. It's trying to it's trying to use a notation system without writing yet. And of course, in, in both cases, agricultural is is tremendously important both to the Inca and to the uh, the ancient uh, Mesopotamians. Yes. Uh, because remember, it wasn't just that we learned to cultivate crops and domesticate animals. These technological advancements changed the shape and the scope of human life. It demanded new systems of thought, and the clay tokens were a part of this. Yeah, I, I would say one thing that seems significant with the introduction of agriculture and domesticated animals is that you're not concerned with what you're eating today. You're right. concerned with all the things you have available to eat in the future. Exactly, yeah. So with the, uh, with the earlier tokens, it's a pretty basic model. The more primitive tokens, you have like a token with a sheep on it, and that like clay- a picture of a sheep? Yeah, a little pic- picture of a sheep, and that means, hey, this represents one sheep. Uh-huh. And that is essentially a, a pictogram, alright? You have uh, a symbol that represents the thing that it is. Yeah. So like if you have a picture of a dog, that is a pictogram representing a dog. But then the, the tokens, uh, uh, get, more complicated. They begin to represent multiple items. Uh, so you might have a token that would have multiple uh, sheep on it, and that would represent multiple sheep, the number of sheep uh, represented there. Now, wait, uh, what if you just sort of like drew extra sheep on your... <laughs> uh, well, th- th- we will get into some of that, because that would be that would be wrong. That would be counterfeiting, Joe. Yes. Um, 
that, uh, you know, as the cities develop, you get more and more complex tokens, tokens that are, that are not only representing more of one item, but are essentially uh, breaking off from the idea of a mere pictograph to the idea of an uh, or a pictogram to an ideogram, which is a symbol that represents an idea. OK, so there's a level of abstraction there. Right. Like a classic example of this would be to go back to the dog picture of a dog. That's a pictogram or a pictograph representing the dog. But a picture of a dog with a circle and a slash through it. That, of course, means no dogs. And that's a rather simple thing, but it's it's the next step in uh, in, in in symbolic representation. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. It introduces abstract negation. Yeah. So these were used for these clay tokens were used for trading and record keeping. They were strung on strings. Uh, in some cases, huh. each end of the string attached to a clay uh, bullet that was that sealed the deal. So th- this would h- keep you from uh, from tampering with it. So you have like six sheep, you put, and that's that's the number of sheep involved in this deal or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, then you join the strings, you seal it with clay. Nobody can take any uh, tokens off or oh, put them on. You can't cheat by adding beads. Exactly. Um, then they also had another system where they stored the tokens in clay envelopes. Uh, but then, of course, one of the, ideas, the things here is you put the to- clay tokens inside a clay structure. How do you know what's in there? Well, you take b- before you seal it all up, you take the tokens and use them to uh, to to mark the outside of the the, the clay envelope uh, so that people will know exactly what's in there. So but then again, you have a sealed record of something. You know, all of this discussion makes me think about a a really interesting concept that I'd like to do a full episode on sometime, which Mm -hmm. is how physical writing systems affect the way we think. Yeah. I I know there are a few studies along these lines. Like one of the things I read uh, just poking around real quick on the subject is about how the direction of a writing system changes how we envision the passage of time. That's just yeah. one simple example, but I'm sure there are tons of examples. If you're if you're a, a literate person and you interact with reading and writing on a frequent basis, I think that probably has some effect on how you interact with the world, on how your mind perceives, especially abstract concepts. So the question I have is because almost everybody today who uh, who is literate, who uses reading and writing, uses graphical reading and writing, mm-hmm. markings on a page. Now, you might have some differences in that, like maybe writing that goes from right to left or from left to right. That's one thing you could look at. But how would it change the way your mind interacts with the world if your physical notation system of reality is based in strings instead of in making markings on a page. Indeed, yeah, we've, we've or, t- or in clay tokens. Yeah, how does that yeah, how does that change the way you you think about the world, talk about the world? Um do you live in a world of uh, yeah, just t- trying to imagine the the Inca mindset where agriculture and textiles are such an important aspect of your world and then then how are they they informing your view of reality itself. Yeah, I, I would ju- I would love to see the sort of the differences in imagination, say, uh, that are present between a person who uses standard graphical writing systems and someone who is maybe a novelist who works in strings. Would, would that change how the way a novel unfurls, the way the story is told? Yeah, like just uh, thinking back to what we were talking about earlier, earlier about the uh, the wandering god of the of the Incas, uh, uh, Viracocha. Yeah, um, did he? In, you know, in sort of modern Western uh, ideas of a god, sometimes you hear you know about like the Book of God, right? And he has a book, and he's writing people's names in it. Yeah. So did uh, did this uh, god of the Inca, the wandering god, did he have uh, a kipu? And then what uh, what did it consist of? What kind of information would be uh, bound up in its knots? Oh. No, is yeah, is your name written or not written? Is your name tied in the kipu of life? Yeah, um, and you know another area where all this talk of clay tokens and and kipus uh, and and uh, and written language, another area where this uh, the, 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 I can't help but think about is our increasing use of emoticons, emojis, and also just memes and gifs to convey our emotional responses. To, uh, to different scenarios and bits of information on the internet. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, one of the things that's, that's true about memes is that many of them are linguistic in nature, so they'll mm. have text on them. Right. But plenty aren't. Yeah. Uh, plenty are just pictures, you know, reaction gifts. Yeah. It's huge on the internet. Yeah. Like the, um, I mean, it's kind of 
exploded into its own thing, but the whole John Travolta wandering into a room confused. Uh-huh. There's no text there, but it conveys a little something more than merely, hey, I don't understand, more than just putting a, a row of question marks uh, in response to something, right? Yes. Um, there's actually a brilliant uh, uh, short. I don't know if you've seen this yet, uh, but it aired on the Colbert uh, show. Oh, yeah. You, you sent it to me. Uh, yeah. And I it was uh, it. it's like a little skit. Uh, and the idea is that uh, Facebook is rolling out an additional uh, feature uh, as, a, as, as a follow up to their reactions deal where you, the reactions thing, of course, is where they they took the thumbs up and they augmented it so that you can do uh, like a heart or a angry face and yeah. a few others. I'm laughing. Yeah. So they were this a skit involved Facebook rolling out something called Facebook Alpha, which is essentially them recreating the use of of the alphabet, saying, hey, right. we have we have uh, these uh, all these each one of these stands for a, a different part of a word. And right. you can 26 symbols that you can now use to show your reactions <laughs> to things. Yeah, I loved how they were like, you can, in fact, represent the entire works of Shakespeare using <laughs> only these 26 symbols. Yeah, so I'll, I'll have to link to that on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com because if you haven't seen it, it's a, not only is it a wonderful send up of emoji culture, uh, it also ties into some of the origins of written language and some of the earlier notation systems that yeah. we're talking about here. Yeah. Uh, there's one more interesting fact I want to get to, uh, before we finish out is that I don't know if you got a chance to read about this, but there are some kipus still in use in modern times. Uh, and so you would be thinking like, oh, well, if there are people who know how to, you know, write in the language of kipus today, why don't we just ask them to translate? Yeah. That's not exactly how they're used today. Instead of being used for literature or rep- record keeping, they're used for ritual power. Uh-huh. Uh, so the example I read about was a University Co- College London project page uh, about how in the Peruvian Andes, there's this mountain community called San Cristobal de Rapaz. And within this village, in a protected ceremonial building known as a Kahawaii, the villagers have been keeping this gigantic kipu object for ritual and ceremonial use. Hmm. And this one giant object is believed to be collected from a, a large number of smaller kipu over the years. Some parts of it are older than others. Some might be more recent. But what really struck me is the way it, it was used. And I want to read a, a quote from this uh, UCL project page. Uh, where they say, a number of rituals happen inside the Kahawaii. Their most important aspect is La Busqueda del Tiempo, which could be translated the search for weather when the mountains are invoked to bring rain. Participants bring offerings like oils, raywains, which is crop offerings, coca leaves, kunuk incense, tobacco, liqueurs, flowers, guinea pigs, etc. And the main ritual is the Rewan Entrego, which happens on the second night of January. At this time, the members of the committee that oversees the use of the pastures around Rapaz are rotated. The kipu are not handled, they're only invoked. Their presence is considered beneficial to the rituals themselves and to the success of the political changeover. Huh. So this makes me think about in what ways the functional technologies of one era become the holy relics of the next. Like, which of our functional technologies could become an item of religious significance in the future? This would be sort of like if if our Excel spreadsheets became holy objects in the right. future. <laughs> or uh, or if you take the, the, the uh, hypothesis that there's more literary information in the kipus, even if our, you know, books or something, uh, even if we couldn't read them, we just had books put up somewhere as holy objects. Oh, yeah. I mean, this gets right into the subject of grimoires that, um, that I covered with a Christian uh, about a year back, where the book becomes... Uh, more important as a symbolic uh, representation of the data within it and the, the power within it and the meaning within it, as opposed to just a mere, uh, you know, physical record of the thing. Yeah. Once again, we're seeing this fascinating uh, line that runs right through between uh, the, the sort of mundane usage of technology to the holy power of religion and all of the symbolic territory in between. I, I love these types of subjects, uh, and I loved getting to talk about the Inca today. I, yeah. I think this has been really cool. Yeah, I mean, really, uh, hopefully, uh, among other things, this will give you uh, a, a little more respect for 
for the this fabulous culture and the sort of a, a, a amalgam of cultures that came before. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're one of the people out there who's working on this research to try to decode the quipus and find out uh, if there's literary information in there and if so, what it is, uh, we, we wish you all the best and we can't wait to learn more. Yeah. Hey, in the, in the time being, if you want to check out uh, more content from Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find blog posts, uh, podcast videos, links out to our various social media accounts. We are Blow the Mind on Facebook and Twitter. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tumblr. And, uh, hey, and if you want to physically send us uh, some sort of uh, Kipu-inspired uh, creation to convey uh, your appreciation for the podcast, uh, you can find the physical address. Uh, over at HowStuffWorks.com. And, of course, as always, if you'd like to email us with your thoughts or feedback about this episode or any others, you can get in touch with us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.